So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans uh, chapter 8. We've been in this series for a number of weeks now, uh, and we're just continuing right along. Uh, what, what you need to understand, though, about Romans 8, in case this is your first time or maybe you're just forgetting, Romans 8 comes after what we call Romans 7, okay? So after Romans 7 comes Romans 8. And the backdrop of Romans 7 uh, is that Paul is, has an inward struggle of sin. Paul's a believer. He understands he's saved by the Lord. Yet inside, he realizes he has a real battle with sin on his hands. He says, For what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very things I hate. In verse 19, he says, For the good I want to do, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. So this man in his heart, he wants to obey the Lord, but he struggles because the flesh is strong. And while he's overcome uh, the flesh, it's still a reality in his life that it is a battle. And he gets to the very end of the chapter, and he says, Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to Jesus Christ, our Lord. So he gets to Romans 8, and he seeks to encourage the believer. So if you are here a believer, and you struggle with your own sin, and you hate your sin, what comfort can you have? And here Paul gives it. First, he says, look to Christ at the beginning. Therefore, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And he also talks about the Spirit. But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus is going to raise you one day. You can take hope that you have Christ and you have the Spirit. Last week, Caden Colson uh, preached on verses 18 through 25. And he explained how there's the groaning, both in creation and the believers. And we looked at the certainty of the glory to come. Looking forward to glory is our consolation now. So it's really a hope in the new creation. Well, this new creation was the hope of Last week's message, I think this text here that we're going to look at today speaks to the believer in a specific way. If you're a believer here today, and you're burdened by sin and the pains of this world, and and you're really struggling maybe to pray, and you say, how do I even pray? Where do I start? What do I pray for? Or maybe you're lacking uh, in assurance. How do I know that I'll actually make it to glory one day, that when I die, I'll actually be in the presence of the Lord, and that the Lord is in control of all things in my life. How do I know this? This text has answers for you. This text is going to tell you two things, that you can know how to pray, even in your weakness, and you can know that you will make it to glory one day, and you will see the Lord face to face. So if you want hope and prayer and certainty of glory, this text will be of encouragement to you. So I want to now turn to read the passage. So if you'll Open with me to Romans 8, starting in verse 26, verses 26 through 30. It says this, And in the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Because those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. 
And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So, I have two main points today. First one is you have hope in prayer, and then eventually we'll get to the second one, hope of glorification. But point number one, hope in prayer, verses 26 through 27. Okay, you're going to see how in these first two verses, the Holy Spirit gives us hope in prayer as we endure in life and look towards glory. We'll consider verse 26 first. And in the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. So it says the Spirit helps us in the same way. What is this same way? Okay, the same way that we've just looked at last week is you have a hope of a new creation. The hope of glory and of a new creation gives you present help in your battle against sin. And in this, in the same way that the hope of the new creation gives you help, we have the Spirit also helps you in your weakness. So the Spirit himself is your help. But what is the weakness? The weakness is that of prayer. Each one of us has a weakness in prayer. And the Spirit helps us in this weakness. What is the weakness? It explains it right here. It says, in the same way the Spirit helps our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we should. Meaning that for the believer, you, you oftentimes will lack what exactly to pray. I mean, what, what's the content of your prayers? How should you pray? The disciples even say this before the Lord's Prayer. They say, Lord, teach us to pray. They were at a loss. Sometimes it's a weakness against sin in the flesh. Oh, I've done that again. I failed in that way. I, 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 I did that. How do, how do I pray to the Lord? Other times it's when you lose hope. You, you, as we looked last week, you, you, we groan inwardly within ourselves, eagerly awaiting redemption. That you're, just, you're looking forward to redemption, but right now, life is just tough, and you don't know how to pray. You look at the brokenness in this world, and you ask, how can you pray? So in the face of great adversity, what do you pray? When you, or maybe a friend or a family member, is confronted with tragedy, maybe someone just got diagnosed with an, an illness, terminal illness. Maybe you've lost your job, or maybe you've lost a loved one. Someone's actually died in your family. You know you're supposed to pray according to the will of God, but you, you don't know what the will of the Lord is. You say, why is this happening? How do I pray? How, do, how is he working? I know he is working, but I don't see how he's working, and I, I don't even know how to express this to the Lord. How do I, how do I come to him? Here's where the verse comes in. The Spirit himself intercedes for us. You know, what, what does it mean to intercede for someone? Uh, an illustration may be a lawyer in court. Okay? If you think of a, a courtroom, uh, you have one who speaks on behalf of another. So you have uh, the person giving testimony, and, and you give a testimony, you say what happened, sure, and then the lawyer actually takes what you've said, those simple, inadequate words, and turns them into an argument, something as articulate and clear and precise and helpful to the judge to argue your case. So that even though you're the one being tried, there's someone else on your side actually speaking for you to your benefit. And in the same way, the Spirit, in a sense, acts as the lawyer for you. 
Meaning that when you pray to God the Father and, and your words are inadequate, God actually helps you with his own spirit. The spirit comes alongside you and pleads according to your own prayer to the Lord. Do you realize that the third person of the Trinity is interceding for you as you pray? He is pleading with you. As you pray to the Lord, he is also praying to the Lord. If there is any encouragement in prayer to pray, this is the encouragement. Your prayers don't ascend to the Lord alone. It's not just your words, your own thoughts, but they actually go accompanied by the prayers of the Spirit. So when you pray to the Lord, it's not just you, but it's the Spirit as well. And they're perfect prayers of the Spirit. When you pray with things that aren't quite right and you don't know the words to say, keep praying because the Spirit is praying alongside with you on your behalf. Jesus promised the Spirit would do this. He would get us here. In John 14, he says, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate, that he may be with you forever. So you had Christ here on earth, but when he left, he sent the Spirit. Now Christ is at the right hand of the Father. In 1 John 2, 1, he says, If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So that when God looks at us in our sin, the Son intercedes and says, No, my, my blood is paid for their sins. It's paid in full. They're off the hook. I paid for that. I took the punishment. And in a way, the, Spirit, or the Son does that for our sins. The Spirit does that in our prayers. When our prayers go to the Father, they're accompanied by those of the Spirit with perfect words so that the Father always hears the prayers which are best for us. Now, what does the Spirit exactly say to the Father? What is he expressing? At the end of 26, you see that we don't know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Okay, it's not some type of strange tongues or foreign languages, but literally a wordless groaning. Like, you know, there's no words to it. It's just a, an inner groaning that you, you desire something. The kind of inner and quiet pleadings of the human heart, which then the Spirit takes and gives expression to. Okay, and articulates them. So that when your weakness in prayer, this is what you can know, is no hindrance to the Father because the Spirit is pleading for us on our behalf. When your f- prayers are futile, empty, and maybe even wordless, that you can't even express them. The Spirit's prayers are alongside yours, and they are strong, and they are articulate, and they are perfect to the Father. Paul continues on in verse 27. He says, And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Who is the one who searches hearts? That's the Father. In in Psalm 139.1, it says, O Yahweh, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down. Okay, so the Father here perfectly knows your hearts. And he also knows what the mind of the Spirit is. As the Spirit is interceding for you, the Father perfectly understands the Spirit because he understands both you and the mind of the Spirit. And he understands exactly what you're asking for and how the Spirit is helping you because he intercedes for the saints, okay? Uh, the, the Spirit is speaking for you, but, but in perfect accordance with the will of God, 
Okay, there's an in- illustration of an interpreter. Uh, when I was an undergrad, uh, before seminary, back in Pennsylvania, uh, I got to go on a trip. We went to Turkey and Greece. Uh, some people, it's to map out Paul's original missionary journeys. Like when Paul went to all those different cities, a lot of the cities where you read about in the New Testament, Philippi and Colossae and Laodicea, those different cities, we tracked them. And we got to travel there, we got to fly there and drive there, and we got to see the cities, see where Paul preached on Mars Hill, and all these different things. And it was, it was a fascinating trip. But if you've ever traveled out of the country and you're not bilingual, uh, you, you'll realize that once you leave the U.S., not everybody is familiar with English, and certainly most don't speak it fluently. So that you're with people, and you can see them, and you're next to them, but you can't communicate with them. You struggle to. You can't express what you want to say to them, even though they're right there. And so when we went to Turkey and Greece, we had a, an interpreter. His name was Erkal. He was one of the funniest little guys we ever had, and he was a joy to be around. And uh, what he would do is when we had something we needed to express to the locals, he would say it for us. So if I need food and I'm hungry and I, I want to order a certain thing on the menu, I just see pictures and I point to it, and he can express that and say what I want. I can't even get words out of my mouth, but he can express exactly what I want to say. Or if I need to find a restroom, I don't know how to ask for that in another language, but he can ask for that, and I can find it then. So the interpreter understands your dilemma, and, record, and then reordered what I said in English so it fits properly and communicates effectively in another languages. may even have to change around some of the words and the meanings and the orders so that the person understands so they can understand me. And in a similar way to the interpreter, we need the help of the Spirit, except much, much more. Maybe you've been there, unable to make sense of, of what you're thinking, certainly not sure of how to say it. This is our human weakness in prayer. So the Spirit helps us in our weakness, taking the message that he knows we want to communicate but can't communicate to the Lord, and he turns it into a prayer and translates it into words that are pleasing to the Lord, into a perfect prayer. And and unlike a human interpreter who can make mistakes, or even if he wanted to, he could twist your words You have no idea what the human interpreter is saying. I just trusted him to faithfully represent what I said and wanted. The Spirit does this. He does not make mistakes. He cannot, and he will never twist your words. That The desires of your heart and the prayers you want to utter, he faithfully translates to the Father. Sometimes you can offer nothing more than a silent groan, but the Spirit is able to turn even these into perfect prayers. And he does all of this, the end of verse 27, according to the will of God. Uh, Well, our prayers are often not in alignment with God's will, right? We pray selfishly. You ask and you do not receive. Why? Because you pray with selfish motives. Okay, You, You think you have the solution in your prayer. Lord, I see this dilemma in my life, uh, and I know how to fix it. Maybe you're on a sports team and, and, and the coach doesn't respect you enough or, or play you or start you. And, and you're like, I know the solution, Lord. If you'll just let me start. In this, grade, in this classroom where you have a tough teacher and you want to get an A to keep that 4.0 and the teacher has you at like a B. Well, I know how to pray to the Lord. 
Lord, I want you to let me get an A in that class. May not even be a proper prayer. The Spirit's prayers are actually in alignment with the will of God. It may not be the Lord's will for you to play often on a sports team. It may not be the Lord's will for you to get an A in that class. But the Spirit doesn't pray for those things in a sense. The Spirit prays in alignment with the will of God. And the good thing is that the will of God is actually what is best for you. His prayers are always answered because he prays in accordance with the will of God. God God has never held back because of our prayers because the Spirit is interceding for us. He's actually praying that the will of God is accomplished in your life. So what comfort can you take for this? As a believer who's struggling in prayer, one, you can pray. Do you see the beauty of prayer and how the Spirit helps you in your prayer? I hope you do, and I hope that encourages you to pray more to the Father. How many times do you not have the perfect words? That's okay. You don't need to have the perfect words. You don't need to have all the answers. You can pray to the Lord, express you ask that his will be done, and that you can ask that his spirit intercedes for you. When you've lost a loved one and you have no words to say, and you're at your end, you can trust that the spirit is still interceding for you. And the spirit knows what the will of God is in your life and prays in accordance with that. So ask the spirit for help in your prayers. When you're asked at a loss for words, ask the spirit to intercede for you. It's what he does. It's who he is. So that concludes point number one. Hope in prayer. I hope this strengthens your prayer and encourages you to pray. But in addition to helping you in prayer, the next section, he also helps us by assuring us of our future glory. Okay? Main point number two, hope of glorification, verses 28 through 30. Okay, this is going to bring us to one of the most well-known passages in the entire Bible. Okay? Uh, verse 28 through 30, many people have memorized this, many people know this, but also many people forget that this verse comes in context of Romans 8. Okay, and we're going to look at that today, we're going to look at the meaning of this verse. So for the second point, you can rest assured, or you can hope to glory, knowing that those whom God has set his love upon are justified now and will be glorified one day. As you're hoping to glory, You can rest assured knowing that those whom God has set his love upon are justified now and will be glorified one day. Nothing can separate you from that. Nothing can change that future glory. Verse 28, and we know, I'll read 28 through 30, and we know that those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, because those whom he foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he would be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Verse 28 begins with, and we know. A fixed certainty and absolute reality will be true for all time. Okay? This is absolutely true. This is a promise of the Lord. This is true for the, in, in all time throughout history and will always be true. And we know that for those who love God, he is talking here to the believer. He's not here talking to the unbeliever. He's not here 
talking to the one who hasn't heard about Christ. He's talking about those who have heard Christ and responded to the gospel. If you are a believer, he says, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. What he says is every single event in your life is working for good. Now, this almost seems too good to be true. God is literally promising nothing bad will ever happen to you ever again. You say, Ben, I I see the verse. I see what it says, but but I'm also alive. And I've read earlier in, in Romans 8 when he says the sufferings of this present time, but we suffer. And and in verse 23, there's inward groanings of the believer to the new creation. Life here is not as we we desire. It's not anything like Eden. We're living in a sinful and cursed world. What do you mean all things are working for good? Uh, This isn't isn't Disneyland where all things are good and happy. Like, this is real life. Like, don't you understand? You need to understand what Paul is saying and what he's not saying. He's not saying that all things will go perfectly well for you. He's not saying that you'll be spared from all the sin and suffering which you see around us, that you fight within us. Uh, He's not even saying you won't struggle with the flesh, endure the effects of sin in your life. What you reap, you will sow. There will be troubles in your life. But if I can... Try to summarize it if you want to capture it in a sentence. Paul is not saying that all things are good. He's not saying all things are good. What he is saying is that all things work together for good. He's not saying all things are good in themselves. He's saying all things work together for good. Things work against you. Sufferings. Tragedy, heartbreak, disappointments. Life happens. But, but God takes all of it and assures you that in the end, ultimately, that our end will be only good. Quote one commentator says, Paul's not saying that God prevents his children from experiencing things that can harm them. Not even promise to be free of being harmed. Rather, he is attesting that the Lord takes all that he allows to happen to his beloved children, to the believer, even the worst things, and turns those ultimately into blessings. So that even when something bad happens now, the ultimate end of it, God can turn it and use it for good. Hey, there's many examples of this in the Bible. You, you can think of common illustrations like Joseph, right? He got sold into slavery, ends up saving Egypt and the world. Uh, you can think of Job, just the trials he went through all through the book. And at the end, he's restored. But I, I want to take you to a, a different example, okay? Uh, if you could keep your finger in Romans, but go back to Genesis 29, okay? If you could flip back to Genesis 29, just an illustration of this, how God can work all things for good. Okay, in, in, in Genesis 29, it's the first book in the Bible, about 29 chapters in, you can get to verse 32 at the very end. If you know the story, uh, there's Jacob and uh, Rachel. They were married, some of the patriarchs. And 
Jacob finds this girl named Rachel, whom he loved. And she had a father uh, named Laban. And he had to work seven years to get her. He said, yeah, you can have my daughter in marriage, but work for me seven years first. So he works for him seven years, okay? That's all of middle school and high school combined for you. And you aren't even through high school yet, okay? Start in middle school to the end of high school, all seven years. And he gets to the end of it, and it's time for marriage. And Laban tricks him and actually has him marry an older sister named Leah instead. So he loves this girl named Rachel, but he gets tricked into marrying Leah. And if, if you can think about this, you, you're in love with one girl, and the father tricks you into marrying a different girl. Like, that's a tough relationship you just have there with this new girl. And he says, actually, well, if you work another seven years for me, I'll give you uh, Rachel as well. So he works another seven years and gets to marry Rachel. So he has two wives, Leah and Rachel. But he always had eyes and loved Rachel from the beginning. He never loved Leah. So if you can see this dilemma, you have Rachel, who's loved by her husband. And you have Leah, who is not loved, who is actually tricked into being married to this man. This man doesn't doesn't care for her, doesn't love her. So you have a, a girl here who's sad because she's a wife. Waited all your life to become a wife. And your husband doesn't love you. Actually loves your sister more. And and, and you're sitting there. That's a miserable situation to be in. You're there, this man who I'm married to loves my sister and I'm stuck in this marriage. So one of the things that the Lord does here is that in verse 31, so Genesis 29, verse 31, and Yahweh saw that Leah was unloved, and he opened her womb, and Rachel was barren. So that Leah actually was able to have children, but Rachel wasn't, which is a source of blessing. So if you, we're going to look at each of these verses, and initially, what does Leah do? She hopes that her bearing of children will bring about Jacob to love her. It's a miserable situation. So verse 32, Leah conceived, bore a son, named him Reuben. She said, because Yahweh has seen my affliction, now surely my husband will love me. Okay, because I'm unloved. Uh, Verse 33, she bore a second son, called him Simeon. Yahweh heard that I am unloved, therefore he gave me a son. The third time bore a son named Levi. Now this time my husband will be joined to me because I have borne him three sons. Nothing changed. The husband still didn't love her. She's given him three sons, three children, and nothing's changed. Now for the fourth one. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, this time I will praise Yahweh. Husband still doesn't love her, but she says, this time I will praise Yahweh. Therefore, she named him Judah, and she stopped bearing. So, you have life of Leah. There's no obvious sign that God's working in this marriage. But at some point, Leah comes to the understanding of, I'm going to trust the Lord, I'm going to praise the Lord in this. Has no understanding that this is going to be for her good. And what does the Lord turn this into? Do you you recognize those four names in the nation of Israel? Okay? The, the four oldest sons. So you have Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. Well, the line of the seed, back in Genesis 3, who's going to crush the head of the serpent, 
talking the line of David, the line of Jesus, has to go through one of these sons. Those first three sons don't get it. It actually goes through the fourth son. What was unknown to Leah at this time is actually that the son she bore, that the son she bore is going to be the one to bear the line of David and bear the line of Jesus. So at the end of time, Leah looks back on her struggles in marriage, and she, she understands that the Lord has blessed that, taken her tragedy of being an unloved wife, and turned it into uh, producing the line of the Lord Jesus Christ through whom all people of the earth will be saved. Okay, And there are stories of this throughout Scripture, when the Lord turns seemingly bad things that appear that way and turns them into very good things, but for the people in them, you don't always see that. You don't have the wisdom of the Lord. For Leah, I don't know where she was at. She may have died before she had any recollection of this. She knows it now. She's in glory and she sees the full plan of the Lord, but she did not know it then. But the promise is true that she could trust the Lord. He can use it for good, that he does use it for good. So what I tell you today is that tragedy, death, divorce, even your own sin, the Lord uses all of it. Nothing is a waste. He's not saying that these things are good in themselves, but the Lord can use it for good. But I know some of you are presently hurting. And you hear this object, and you're, but you're in the midst of hurt. And you're in the midst of pain. Some of you may have just lost a loved one. Some of you are just feeling like outsiders with friends at school. Maybe you're facing an unknown future. I don't know what I'm doing with my life next year. And you're just, you're hurting. You're, you're unknown. This verse isn't necessarily to diminish your pain, your sadness, your confusion, those things. This verse doesn't explain why these things are happening. It doesn't give you the answer to that. I can't tell you why. I can't tell you how God is working, but I can tell you that he is working. And you can take that promise to the bank. I'm not asking you to understand. I'm asking you to trust the Lord that he is working. And even if you're at the place where I don't understand, I I don't understand how he's working, it's an okay place to be. Okay? It's an okay place to be because Paul gets here. At the end of this section, in Romans 11, I think we have this verse on the screen, in Romans 11, 33 through 36, the end of this first section, what does Paul say? Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become his counselor or who has first given to him that it might be repaid to him for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be the glory forever. Amen. Paul, under inspiration of the Spirit, doesn't know all the things of the mind of the Lord. To understand the full plan of the Lord is not possible, but he does know and is able to say that we know for a fact that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Okay, you can, you can take that to the bank. You can't explain how always. You don't know in the midst of it, but you can trust that it is for good. Okay, so if you're looking to apply this verse, I think the application is on your worldview. Uh, ultimately, yes? Sure. Can maybe Tim help you find it? Yeah. 
So the application for this verse is on your worldview. Ultimately, in the life of a believer, if you're a Christian, there is no such thing as an ultimate tragedy in your life. As hard as that may be, if you're going through it, there is no such thing as an ultimate tragedy in your life. There is hurt now. There, there's much hurt now. But there's, there's always blessing later. Maybe, maybe it's in a formation of character. Maybe it's a growth in trust. Maybe it's a shaping of perspective. Maybe it's a greater love for Christ. But, but there's no such thing as an ultimate tragedy. Why? Because the Lord uses all things for good. So, so if you are someone here today who's hurting, I'd urge you run to the Lord. Though it may take time, it will work out for your good. Whether you see it or not, just like Leah, who did not see how it was for her good. Uh, whether you feel it or not, even whether it turns out the way you want it to or not, you can trust that it's for your good. Sometimes those friends leaving us that are a heartbreak to us are the best thing to happen to you. Sometimes the family tragedy is a way that the Lord brings you closer to him or that draws in someone else from the family to be saved. This verse is a promise. You can pray this promise. Good will not always align with your view of good. This is God's definition of good as he sees the whole picture and is not limited to our little perspective. He saw the whole picture in the life of Leah. She did not. The good you receive, though, is not merely okay. Maybe you, you say it, oh, oh yeah, that, that's good. It's not merely an, an okay good. This is an excellent good from the Lord. He's not withholding anything from you, but he's giving exactly what you need when you need it. In Psalm 84, verse 11, no good thing does he withhold from those who walk blamelessly. If you are walking with the Lord and you love the Lord, uh, you can trust that no good thing is he withholding you. He has given you the best that he has to offer. This is a radical shift in worldview, and it, and it affects every way you think about life, in every circumstance. But you're now, you're now switched to that no matter what you face in life, you can thank the Lord for all things because you know he's using it for your good. The good things and the seemingly bad things, you can trust the Lord is using it for your good, for your sanctification, if you are a believer. Not because it feels good, but because he's promised to use these things for your good. And in verse 29, to conform you to the image of his son. You can give thanks for every event in your life because you know that God is orchestrating every one of them for your good. It's, it's tendency, as we're selfish humans, to think uh, that we're the victim of bad, bad breaks in life. But you have to understand the Lord is orchestrating every event in your life. You're not the victim of bad breaks. You're the victim of a very good break and that you deserved hell. And you're still breathing. And for the believer, you are saved. You don't have condemnation to fear. Verse Chapter 8, verse 1, there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. God's mercy is active in your life right now. Believer, take hope that all things are working together for your good. But the qualifier in verse 28, and we know that for who? For those who love God. Okay, this is only true for those who love God. If you don't love God, conversely, every blessing which the unbeliever, the one who doesn't know God, receives is ultimate for them, right? There is no ultimate blessing 
at the end of time for the unbeliever. The blessings you have in life are all you get. The good things of God now only serve to increase your debt to him later and the judgment which you will receive. The blessings for the unbeliever are actually a tragedy because they're expressions of God's grace and kindness and mercy on you. And if you reject him, they're just further evidence against you. It can be an eternal tragedy. If you don't believe none of these things I've said today are true for you, all things are not working together for your good. The wrath of God is abiding on you. All, the Spirit is not interceding for you. He is not accompanying your prayers. The Lord does not hear your prayers. So for the believer, do you not see, or the unbeliever, do you not see all the benefits of Christ? Do you not see the blessedness it is, the comforts of Christ, the many blessings, the intercession of the Spirit, the worldview shift that you can trust that all things are working together for good, and he's ordering all things to your benefit. You can, and furthermore, you can have your sins forgiven. What do, you, what do you need to do to be in this state where you can have your sins forgiven? What's Paul say? It's a trustworthy saying and deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. If you match up with that qualification, if you're a sinner, Christ came to save you. Okay? Came to the world to save sinners. And all you have to do is turn from your sin and believe in him. And if you do that, all the benefits, all the blessings, all the comforts of Christ are given to you. Your, your sin goes to him. His righteousness goes to you. He says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. For the unbeliever, I just say, consider the blessings of the gospel and of Christ and turn to Christ today. Continuing on for the believer, though. For the believer, how can we be sure this promise is true and not only some feel-good saying, right? It's easy to say all things are good. You know, it's, it's working together for good. I, I know you're going through things, but how do we know? How do we know? How are we certain of this? He answers this in 29 through 30. Okay, verse 29 through 30. Verse 29, because those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, that he would be firstborn among many brothers. So what you're going to see here in these last two verses is how can you know that all things work together for good? Because God finishes what God starts. Maybe you've made New Year's resolutions in the past. Maybe you want to work out regularly, or maybe you want to read your Bible every day, never miss a day for the whole year. And maybe you want to eat healthier, or maybe you're, I'm going to respect my, sibling, or respect my parents and love my siblings. Then you month in or weeks in or days in, you see yourself fail at this. See, I made this resolution. I started something, but I didn't finish it. God's not like this. What God starts, he finishes. He says, because those whom he foreknew, it starts with foreknowledge, then goes to predestination. So first is foreknowledge. What it basically means is known before. Okay? Now, it's not talking about knowledge of what would happen. We all know this, that God knows what's going to happen in the future. He knows uh, the beginning from the end, or he knows the end from the beginning. Okay, of course God knows this. It's not just a knowledge about facts of what is going to happen in life, who you're going to marry, what job you're going to have. It's, it, it's not this, but it's actually a relational knowledge. I want to illustrate this for you quickly in the Old Testament. Okay, first God knew, so pre-knowledge, God knew Jeremiah. 
Not just that he would exist, but that God loved him. So in Jeremiah 1.5 says, Before I formed you in the innermost parts, I knew you. And before you came out from the womb, I set you apart. I have given you as a prophet to the nations. Not that he knew he's going to come into being and be a prophet, but that I have a relationship with him. The Lord has a relationship with Jeremiah that he's going to speak to the people. And furthermore, when God talks to Israel in Amos 3.2, also on the screens, it says, you only have I known among all the families of the earth. He's talking to the house of Israel. What he's not saying is I'm only aware that Israel exists and I'm not aware of any of the other people that exists. He's not saying that. What he is saying is I have a relationship with you. I know you like you and I have a relational connection now. God has chosen to be in relationship with Israel and nobody else. So, in Romans eleven two, 2, he also says, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknow. He foreknew them. He doesn't reject them because he has relationship with them. You say, why did God choose to love them? In Deuteronomy 7, Yahweh did not set his affection on you or choose you because you were in number more than the other peoples. For you were the fewest of all peoples, but Yahweh loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your fathers. Brought you out with a strong hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Simply put, God chose to love them because he wanted to. There's nothing attractive about them. God chose to love them, and it's the same for you today. You're not saved because of the good you have done. If you are saved, you're saved because God chose to love you. He loved you beforehand. He foreknew you. He entered into relationship with you before the world began. He set his love on you. He's choosing to enter into a relationship with you. It's the foreknowledge which God is talking about. Uh, think about this. If you're saved by God, he's loved you from eternity past. It hasn't started now. It started in eternity past. Galatians 4.9 describes salvation as having been known by God. If God knows you, you are saved. So the connection between foreknowledge and predestination then is those whom he foreloved, foreknown, meaning those who he had a personal, intimate, redemptive relationship with from all eternity, he now predestines. So if he set his love on you in the past, those same people, he's going to now predestine you. First, God orders that he's going to love you. Then he orders how you're going to be saved. He's chosen to love you. Now he's going to bring you to salvation. He's going to have you come to know Christ. Some of you got saved at camp last summer. God predestined you to hear the gospel at that time and respond in faith. He set it all up. It wasn't an accident. It wasn't a coincidence. God predestined it in that there was a trip. The bus ride got you there safely. There were leaders there with you. Uh, Your parents allowed you to go. There were certain preachers that came. Uh, There were the scriptures that you're holding, the translators that brought those into existence. And then he worked on your heart. All these things he set up that he predestined to bring you to salvation. And for every believer here, there were events where God predestined you for this. Why does he do it? To conform you to his son. Okay? He blessed him to become formed to the image of his son, that he would be the firstborn among many brothers. He's building a family, the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay? One day you're going to see him face to face, and you're going to be like him. Jesus is the firstborn who blazes that trail for us. Okay? He becomes, he is God, we become like him into the family of God. So there's this group of people God has foreknown and now predestined to come to salvation. And in verse 30, now he accomplishes this salvation. 
So in those whom he predestined, he also called. In those whom he called, he justified. In those whom he justified, he also glorified. So, and those whom he predestined, he called. We're now in time and space. Foreknowledge, eternity past, predestined, eternity past, he made a plan. Now he called. This is real time. He now calls you into relationship with him. It's not an invitation. It's not even how I called you to believe in Christ earlier in this message if you're an unbeliever. But it's an effectual call. Not coming from external ways that you can either accept it or reject it, but an internal one where God calls you from within and you respond in saving faith. It's literally who the church is. We're the ones who are called out. He has called you out of darkness, out of sin, and into the light. You respond to the calling of God in faith. And when you respond in faith, you are then justified. Okay, he says, and those whom he called, he also justified. Justification is simply a term meaning that God is satisfied. Christ's work on the cross, he paid for your sin, he gave you his righteousness. If you believe in him, you are justified. You're innocent. You're in a right standing with the Lord. And the final one is, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. Meaning glorified, you will reach heaven, you will see the Lord face to face, you will become as he is. Notice that these five words, little high school grammar here. Tenses. You have present tense, meaning now. Future tense, meaning the future. And you have past tense, meaning the past, right? What's he say? For new, past tense. Predestined, past tense. But those happened in eternity past. Like, duh. For the believer, he called you. That happened in the past. He justified you when you believed. That happened in the past. He also glorified in the past. The glory here is talking about heaven. Why does he put it in the past tense? Because in the mind of God, for those he's already foreknown, predestined, called, and justified, your glorification in heaven with the Lord is already as good as done. There is nothing that's going to break that chain. Okay, there's no question of, do I reach glory? In the Lord's eyes, you've already reached glory. It's as good as done. It, it, it's bound in chains of iron. It's a golden chain. Okay? God is the actor. He foreknew you. He predestined you. He called you. He justified. And he will certainly glorify you. Because what God has started, he will finish. There's no room for escape. If you are a believer here and you have been justified by God, you will reach glory one day. Because the work of God has been going on from eternity past when he foreknew you, and he's going to take you to the future, and the Spirit assures us of that. I'm sure none of you do, but you probably have classmates who turn in incomplete homework, right? None of you would do that. Maybe you do most of your questions, and you leave one or two at the end, or you do half of your questions, right? God isn't like that. When God does something, he does it all the way. Despite your doubts and struggles against sin, despite the inner war which Paul experienced against the flesh, the Lord is going to take you to glory. So Paul here answers the question of chapter 7. Are you safe in your salvation as you struggle in sin? Yes, because those whom God has justified, he will glorify. And you can rejoice in that. Glory is coming for the believer. As sure as your justification was in the past, your glorification is in the future. They're just as sure. 
It cannot be broken. So as you look back to verse 28, all things work together for good. You can look back at it with certainty because the God that says that is working all things together for ultimate good to your glorification. And God truly does work all things for good because he who promises faithful, and you can see this in the entire process of salvation. Uh, Philippians 1, 6 says, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. He will finish what he has started in your life. You don't have to fear losing your salvation. The Lord has you. You can be encouraged to endure. Glory is coming. And you can have hope in sin. It does not win the battle. Okay, you can look expectantly to death because glory is waiting for you on the other side. Thus says the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your spirit. We thank you for your salvation, which is given to us in eternity past. Uh, Lord, we just are so thankful that uh, your love does not change. You finish what you start, and it gives us great hope. Uh, for the future. Lord, we pray here for those who don't know you, that they would see the blessings of Christ, the benefits of Christ, and they would repent of their sins and turn to you. We ask these things in your son's name. Amen.